Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Was there any um, issue or, or friction? Because my understanding is Paul didn't leave under the best of terms you know, when he kind of parted ways. So was it, was there anything that you kind of had to get over related to that or was it no big deal? We never, Prince and I never, that was between he and Paul. And, you know, and I'm sure Paul told you the story. Um, you know, I, I felt, I felt bad for both parties. I mean, at that time when Paul decided to leave Prince because, you know, he had his, Paul's got his own thing, man. You know, he really did have his own thing. He could go and do great stuff, you know. And MCA recognized, you know, and they and they they offered him a big deal, and, and he took it, man. And I think I know that was a sore spot for for Prince, and because he was Prince was going to make him a big star, or so he thought, you know, another protege band, you know. And uh, and I was I was a little leery of Paul leaving that too, even though he was getting paid five dollars a week or whatever the frick it was, you know, it was awful. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> when you when you're a kid and you get you get offered something like that from a big major label, of course you're going to take it. You're a kid, first of all. You know what he what does he know? You know, you know, and it's like you know. I remember talking to him about it, talking to Paul about it, going, "Are you sure you want to do this?" You know, and that I I encouraged him, of course, to to do it, his own thing, of course. You know, because that's he was so good at it. You know, so I don't know. That was a, it was a, that was a strange thing. So, but yeah, you know, I'd still bring Paul around the studio, but you know, Paul was kind of you'd hide in the corners and stuff. I would just bring him in the studio, and we would sit there. And Prince would probably usually did, had no idea he was there, but I don't think he would have kicked him out, you know, because he knew what the talent was. He loved him, man. Bottom line. So, I remember, you know, from the outside as a fan. Uh, I was like looking at the liner notes and things like I always did and saying, wait, uh, Paul's gone. Who's there's another Peterson, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Paul was the one that really got in there first, even though I did, I was there before Paul was, you know, when, when we were rehearsing in 90s or 77 and 78, I mean, I'd go to the rehearsals and, and jam with them, you know, for, for years. And, uh, and that's when I, we kind of parted ways, but then Paul kind of, got in there and so did uh, my little nephew Jason and Jason got in there in the later 80s and uh, Prince loved him too man he thought he was great and uh, we just kind of we made it a family affair <laughs> why not you know and uh, uh, yeah because he played with I think it was uh, did he play with Tomorrow in the Scene or did 
Oh no, he. Uh, oh God, who did Paul, uh, Jason play with? I, I don't remember. It was. Well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It will. Tomorrow uh, in the scene was a Jesse Johnson protege. No, yeah, that's right. That's very true. Um, no, this was uh, the singer. It was one of Prince's girlfriends. Uh, Carmen Electra. Yeah, it's uh, Carmen. That's what it was, Carmen. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I'm geezing, man. I can't remember everything. Hey, we'll get through it together somehow, one way or another. I'm surprised uh, I can remember half of this shit. So there you go. <laughs> what uh, What would you say was the most uh, amazing or fascinating thing that you saw Prince kind of do in a studio or, you know, uh, anything that maybe not a lot of people saw that you were able to be privy to? A lot of people weren't privy to any of it because he would do it by himself. He would do a lot of that stuff by himself. And I don't, I don't remember the, the most, I think the biggest thing that I will tell you that I got to see him do is rehearse on stage in, in the sound stage. And we were the only ones that could come and see him. It, me and LaPuma, Howard Hewitt, I'll never forget just the three of us. They'd set up a couple, three chairs and, and, and he would be rehearsing his show. And I'll never forget one of the, another antidote. It was pretty funny, man. I walk in and I always kind of wore these flamboyant, loud ass shirts and stuff, man. And, and, <laughs> and I remember walking in and we were, so we said it was Howard Hewitt, me and, and, and Tommy LaPuma, because we were, Tommy and I were producing Howard Hewitt. We came in, sat down to watch part of the set, you know, because he wanted, he said, of course you can come in anytime you want, just come on and sit down. So we walked in there and said, he said, wait, hold on, hold on, wait, hang on, man, stop the band. You got to tell Peterson to turn down a shirt. He's way too fucking loud. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from you know, 85, 100, 200 feet, man. You know, we were, because we were just, we were like, you know, in big chairs out there just for lounging. And it would just, and, and I have this just loud ass shirt on. He just had to give me shit about it, which was, of course, what he did very well. He did that <laughs> with everybody. He was very funny. He could be very funny and very <laughs> condescending. <laughs> But overall, funny man. He was a funny son of a gun. So, <laughs> did did you get much exposure to any of the other uh, people that were close to him, like in his bands, like MPG members, and you know, I think you mentioned already Morris Hayes. Um, but um, were there any of those guys you worked with, Michael Bland and Levi? Uh, are there one or two of those guys that uh, just have kind of blew your socks off in terms of you know what they can bring? Oh gosh, yes. Of course, Michael Bland was always somebody that. I knew before he worked with Prince, I worked with him with a guy by the name of um, uh, Hiram Bullock. And that was the guitar player that I was working with, with David Sanborn at the time. And Hiram was doing records for A&M also that I was co-producing with him because he loved what I did too. So I said, well, I got it. I got a drummer for you. Even though we had Steve Jordan and we had Charlie Drayton, were the, some of the greatest drummers out of New York. I said, you got to hear this kid play. And it was mostly doing live stuff when he would come to Minneapolis and do stuff. And, and, and Michael was 16 years old, 17 years old. And just blew me away, man, with his, his talent. And, and he had chops and he had perfect pitch, the poor bastard. <laughs> Anybody with perfect pitch, I say, the poor thing, because everything's out of tune, you know. But, uh, but he was so over-the-top beautiful and such the nicest kid and loving and just unbelievable. And, and yes, go to go on, he was the one that stuck out the most. 
and then the Hornheads, and then Levi, of course, was always playing with Prince. And Levi would come up, he would play bass on stuff, and he would also play these guitar parts. He played out on my records, like you saw, because I loved his playing, man. I mean, so we've got to have him. You know, he came, he'd talk about bringing shit to the party. These guys would come up with parts that are so hip, man. It was like, you got to have them, you know, really. So, um, we were very, very blessed to have those guys hanging around the studios, man. Because, you know, once they were, once Prince didn't have his gloms on him, we could go, come on, <laughs> you know, come in here, I'll pay you. You know, we could, we, because we were doing major label records. So they could come in and get paid a little bit more, you know. So I think Hiram was part of, uh, and a lot of those guys you mentioned were part of that David Sanborn group. They had that uh, weekend TV show for a while in like the late 80s. They um, did. Where they were doing really cool stuff. Called night music. Night yeah. music. Uh, it was a uh, uh, what's our guy's name that does Saturday Night Live? Uh, uh, Lauren Michaels. It was a Lauren Michaels slash Michelob induced show that really never. It was such a great. What did they do? They do three seasons or something like that. And I was floored that they could get by with that many because it was so eclectic, man. It was so many different things. Jules Holland was on it. And from squeeze at that time. And, and, uh, and, and it was just, it was one of those things that was just so cool to put all these people together that, that never played together before miles with somebody else, you know, like, uh, like I mean, Bootsy was on there, all kinds of people, everybody, yeah. everybody. I mean, they have those available now too, I think those shows. So if you ever you guys are interested in checking it out, it's on YouTube too. A lot of it is, but, uh, but the shows that he buy a package of them. So, but it's cool. Yeah. They were yeah. all absolutely Marcus Miller, you know? Yeah. So back to uh, your uh, 99 record souvenir, I got to mention uh, ignorance is bliss. That's really, <laughs> I did that one in New York with my New York buddies. It was uh, Rocky Bryant on, on drums who would have that great drum sound, man. It was kind of like, the, the bonk snare that was pretty cool we always liked that and it was Hiram and me and and no it was uh, Dean Brown Dean Brown was the guitar player on that one and that was uh it was just one of those things another one that we wrote in the studio together I gave him all you know writing credit because we I had a concept and and then those guys added some really cool shit so I said well you get you know if something happens with it you'll get you'll get something from it you know so I, I gave him writing credit and it was just one of those funky ass songs that we, you know, I could have put the horn heads on it because the horn heads and I did a bunch of stuff together. And that's why Prince loved the horn heads, you know, because <laughs> I you, put them on you, everything. Did you connect it? You made him aware of the horn heads or? I think I did a little bit. I was part of the deal. Yeah. No doubt about it. You know, because we have, you know, I, I think, yes. And I think he probably made that name up. You know, because they weren't the horn heads at the time. They were just a horn section that actually played together in different bands and stuff. And I loved them. So I, I know Mike Nelson was a friend of mine. And I and Mike was a great arranger and he would come in and do that stuff and he played on all my shit. So Chris just went, Okay, come on, you're playing on mine. So but I think it was kind of a mutual thing, you know. It's at this we're around the same time, same time back in the eighties, army nineties, early nineties. Well, because they played with him much later, even too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Still, well, now, now they're playing with Corey Wong. <laughs> you know Corey Wong? Yeah. You know, yeah, he's hot. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, he's a hot, he's a hot new, uh, dude, man. So, uh, 
Sonny Thompson was also on that record too, right? Souvenir made an appearance. Which one? Sonny Thompson Who? was he on Souvenir? Oh, Sonny, of course. Yeah, Sonny was always on. Yeah, he he was a he was a force, another force man. He played on a song called Drop Shot, and uh, that was <laughs> he added a lot, man. Sonny adds a lot to everything, but man, his bass playing. He, I don't think he played bass. I think Paul played bass, but he played guitar on it, and it was just. That was another one. I did the same thing as Ignorance is Bliss. I gave everybody, you know, because they brought so much to the party. How can you not? You can't just go, yeah, thanks a lot. You know, and here's a here's hundred dollars. No. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna hook you up. If, if something happens with it, you'll get paid. You know, it'll be it'll be a nice day at the at the mailbox. <laughs> so and they did okay. I mean, you know, they saw money from it. When drop shot on that uh, live record just a couple of years ago, yeah. um, really nice live record. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, man. That's the WDR Orchestra out of Cologne, Germany. That was uh, what a what an honor to be able to do that, man. That was uh, quite a thing. And of course, I, I hauled my little brother Paul with me because he's my right hand man. He's my wingman, you know. So, and the drummer that that usually works with. Uh, with uh, David Sanborn and I, Gene Lake was the drummer on that too. And he's wonderful with the big band. So, and that big band need a little kick in the butt with that funk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, I, there's more in common between big band and funk than some people may know. I think, I mean, they can blend together nicely if you know how to do it. Right. They can, but big bands always used to kind of be a little bit behind the beat because it's always swinging more, you know, but this kind of stuff is more tower of power. And needs to kind of be a little more specific, you know. And uh, they came to the party with a vengeance. <laughs> I mean, they're the baddest cats on the planet. So, you know, we I, so I had the baddest rhythm section that I could get together for that. You know, was where, where, where was where was that one recorded? We were in Cologne, Germany, in the that actual Cologne. Yeah, it was in it was in Cologne, and then we went and did a couple of concerts with it, and uh, and that was about the size of it. But it's just one of those things that it's an honor to do you know, for some people and it's, it turns out to be a, a nice thing to have a feather in your cap. You know what I mean? You, you also did some work with Steve Miller. Is that right? But me and my two brothers worked with Ben Sidrin with, with Steve Miller in 88 through 93. So we had a good five year run with him, man. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. We barely remember those years. Those were, <laughs> <laughs> Those were fun days, man. And uh, never regret it. We're still friends to this day. And he's a good dude, man. You know, he's a kind of a, a Cub Scout leader, Boy Scout leader guy, you know. And uh, we have a good time with him, man. We, uh, you know, we, we heckle him a lot. So <laughs> it must be, yeah, it must be, it must be a blast of uh, playing that catalog. Oh, my God. Well, we were, we kind of got him back into it because. I'll tell you how we how we got to know Steve Miller is when uh, uh, Ben Sidron was going to produce his last record for Capitol, and he wanted to do a jazz record. He wanted to play jazz, so it was a a jazz funk, you know, kind of a funk jazz rendition of the last hurrah for my for uh, you know for for him, and it was uh, Steve's. He thought it was his last trial. He was just going to go quit and be done, you know, with the thing. And and Sidron went, oh, no, you can't do that, man. Let's go play a couple of college gigs behind this record. And, of course, Steve got the bug again. And uh, 
1988, we went and played a few college towns. And, they, you know, of course, they, they didn't want to hear what we were doing. They didn't want to hear the jazz stuff, the Born to be Blue record. They wanted to hear all his old stuff. And this is the beginning of classic rock. It was like the beginning of when classic rock became popular again. So <laughs> that, you know, he, he knew that that was going to be another, another thing, man. So actually, he said, okay, you really want to do this? Yep, let's do it. So he put all of us in a band together because it was me and my family, Billy Paul and me, and Ben Sidron, I got by the name of Bob Malik on, on saxophone and Gordy Knutson on drums. And then we're all Minnesota boys, except for Bob Malik and Sidron, of course. Sidron's from Madison, but Bob is from New York. But they that was the that was the, the conglomeration of guys that we had. And he loved it. And we were together and we, you know, he the classic rock. The, the story behind Steve Miller's thing is he got all his publishing back from Capitol because they thought he was all washed up and done. So what he did is he put together three different greatest hit records, which sold more than the originals. So they became way more famous than without, with, the younger, with the younger crowd and the classic rock lovers. So he ended up doing, I mean, still a touring today. Of course, behind all the same songs we played back then. And <laughs> it's wonderful, man. Are you kidding me? And he, he got the bug so bad. And we did that for, like I said, five years. And I think one of the last gigs I played with him was uh, with Paul McCartney at the Hollywood Bowl in 1993. I think of three or two, I can't remember. But uh, anyways, there you go. There's a little Steve Miller history for you. Wow. Yeah, it was great to see him go back to some of his roots and things. I think a lot of people that knew all those pop rock hits, they, you know, weren't so up on the fact that he was so steeped in, you know, blues and roots music. And blues, blues guy, man. I think he's from Texas, right? Because we're, we're with Warren anyway, but those guys all knew each other from being, going to uh, school together. I think they were in college together. He bought Skag, Steve and, 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 and Ben Sidron. I think all went to Madison, you know, Madison, uh, college uh madison state or whatever it is and uh yeah <laughs> that's all they all knew each other so and they all played together you know for years and uh, the west coast anyway so, it's a small world but it's a big one you, you mentioned uh stepping back for a second shaka khan's record did you actually do any uh did you meet and interact with shaka at all or just work on the recording I worked on the recording during that time. I didn't have any uh, uh, connection with her as far as producing her vocals or anything. They were pretty much done. I ended up doing, taking, taking the songs that had been done already and redoing them and doing my thing to them. But I have, I had played with her before at the Montreux Jazz Festival, Festival. So I knew her, whether or not she remembered me or not, I, I, you know, I, I doubt, but, uh, but I, I had connections with her beforehand and after. But uh, not on that particular record. It was just me doing my thing on two or three songs, you know. So, what about uh, Mavis or, or Rosie? Did you? Rosie, of course, I worked with her very closely, and Mavis, I worked closely with also. But that was another Prince rendition of stuff. I would do um, 
Rosie's was more of me. I did more of me on that. Prince didn't really do much on that. There was like two or three songs that I did by myself and had the rhythm sections and all that stuff, which was pretty much his rhythm section, you know, with me, Michael Bland, and Paul, and, and Levi, and, and uh, the Hornheads, and I had the Minnesota Orchestra come and play on it. And uh, it was a big production thing that I did for her, but Mavis stuff was done pretty much. And I just, I came in and kind of reiterated it for him and made it into something else, you know, I made it into a little different vibe that he loved. And that was kind of my first bone that he gave me was Mavis, you know, and uh, he loved what I did. It was, you know, see what you can do with this kind of thing. And Mavis and I were thick as we had so much fun. I just played with her again last uh, March. That's and awesome. I got, a, I wish I could have uh, shot you some pictures, but we did a thing, a thing called, uh, God's Love We Deliver, which is like a Meals on Wheels thing in New York that we do like a telethon slash fundraiser that has a bunch of people that come through there. And she was one of them last year. And we reconnected pretty hard. She just was the sweetest thing in the world. And now she's on the tour with uh, uh, opening for uh, Bonnie Ray all over the world or all over the United States now. So, well, I just heard, I don't know if you've heard or know, but uh, Buddy Guy, God bless him too. Yeah. His new album's out and there's a duet on there with Mavis. Oh, so that's cool. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Good. Man. I, I don't know if I've heard that yet, but I'd love to. Uh, what, what female uh, singer out of all the ones you worked with uh, really just knocked your socks off? Bonnie. Yeah. Bonnie's one of my favorite men. I mean, of course, Mavis has got a whole thing. And I think Bonnie got a lot of stuff from Mavis. And, and uh, I mean, as far as singers, singers, and my sister, Patty, who I love, and Linda, my other sister, who I love, I can't leave them out. Linda is, is another marvelous musician. She's my oldest sister, plays really great jazz piano and sings her ass off. And But Patty, my sister, and we've done a lot of recordings together. So I can truthfully say that she's probably one of my favorites. But Bonnie is the one that always knocked me out, really. Uh, another woman by the name of America. Uh, Melanie Rosales is another one that is a, a, a local girl that sings her butt off, uh, kind of on the same vein as Bonnie. And, uh, but these girls who have got this real soulful, and Tamara, who's, uh, you know, Tamara, Margaret Cox was such a, we were in bands together for years with Melanie, you know, the TC Jammers, we, we were the two, you know, they were the two front singers and they were just, marvelous together man i mean these girls can sure <laughs> no doubt about it but to be on the road with and, and having you know fun with and, and doing that stuff and uh in the bigger picture of things was bonnie for sure you know i first saw her all the way back in the 70s opening for aerosmith you know oh yeah wow yeah <laughs> wow that's a blast from the past when when was that the 80s no late 70s late 70s wow okay sure yeah. yeah, she didn't really have any big hits then, but except for a couple of kind yeah. of, uh, yeah, she, well, she had maybe a couple of them for sure. Uh, uh, very interesting to see her career progress after that and see how much acclaim she got later on. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, I love her to death and I'm in touch with her weekly. So pretty fun. Were, were you surprised when Prince covered one of her tunes on Emancipation? Um, not really, because he loved her. <laughs> he thought Bonnie was the bee's knees, man. He really did. 
So I think that was a big shot in the arm for Bonnie too, you know, and uh, it's just, you know, it's a love, it's a love relationship. You know, they, Prince loved her. Absolutely. No doubt. I know he wrote some songs he hoped she would do, and I guess she didn't, but uh, those finally came out on that deluxe sign of the times uh, last year. Right. I remember hearing about it, you know, but uh, there you go. <laughs> That's what happened. That she was probably kicking herself a little bit behind that one, but let's talk about your uh, most recent record with your brothers under the radar. Um, yeah, how and why and you know you know what i just said we haven't done this and we should just go do it and it was five years ago i think it was when we did it and i actually i was at a place called the grove in uh do you know the bohemian grove have you heard of this it's it's a strange place man it's a place where the, the, it's a it's a campground in northern california and it's where all these political things have been done and all this stuff, but we went there to play music. And I was there with uh, a friend of mine, Jerry, Jerry Lopez. Jerry Lopez is a wonderful band in uh, Vegas. And uh, he belongs to this thing. And it's, it's kind of a Republican oriented place. And it was way before Donald Trump when we, we did this thing. But I met a guy who ran Greg Field, Greg Fields. He runs Concord Records. Okay, here we go. So uh, at the Bohemian Grove, I met this guy by the name of Greg Fields. And uh, he's a great jazz drummer. And he uh, he said, well, why don't you go do something? And I said, hey, because he knew who we were, the Peterson family, which was unbeknownst to me. And I said, you know what? Okay. He said, yeah, send it to me. And so I, so I was excited as hell. I went, okay, Billy. As soon as we got home from that thing, from that grove, which happens in the beginning of June, I said, we're going to the studio and we're going to cut a record that just the four of us. Paul, you're playing drums. Bill, you're upright. I'm going to play B3. And my nephew, Jason's going to play saxophone. So we all came in with a couple of grooves and sat there and wrote this in three days, man, all that stuff. And we, I refined it afterwards because I was producing on it and I, I arranged it and, and, and actually mixed it also and put it you know we didn't do too many too many overdubs paul came, played some guitar excuse me on a couple of things because he's such a great guitar player too but, son of a gun. <laughs> but he played drums on it because he and billy have this great feel together and of course when we get together as petersons we already we already have our own feel you know and uh it just turned out wonderful and I sent it to Concord, I sent it to Blue Note, I sent it to a couple other people, they weren't here, they didn't really get it. But I gave it to my guy with the WD Orchestra in Cologne, Germany, Joachim Becker. And he loved it. Of course, the Europeans love this stuff, you know. It gets way more uh, acknowledgement over there and in Europe and in, in, uh, in Asia than any place, you know. And, of course, he signed it right away and put it out and it turned out like what you have, what you've heard, and I know you said you liked it, Scott. Thank you. And it got played, man. They, I, I sent it in to, to a few different people. I've got a few guys that I work with. Bud Horner is, Harder is one of the other guys I work with. I don't know if you know that name. But he was uh, an A&R guy for Warner Brothers for years, and he loved the record. So he said, give it to me. I'll run with it. 
And he ran with it, and it, they played under the radar right away on all the jazz stations, and especially um, on Sirius Satellite, where it pays the most money, by the way. <laughs> and we love them for that. <laughs> so, but they played it 12 times a week. You know, they loved it. So, so we're going to go in and do another one, you know, no doubt. They want to hear some more of that. So we're going to go do that. That's our, that's our goal is to go do that around the world, you know? Wow, that's fantastic. Um, and I just want to mention some highlights for me because uh, I like to do that. First oh, cool. off, the, the organ and the sax, just fantastic throughout, especially, you Thank know. You. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure uh, the, and you have some tributes on here too. You mentioned the Mr. Williams is a tribute, but you got some on here which are maybe more, you know, musical, like uh, one for Horace. And right. um, uh, I'm not sure who Peter is for, but. Uh, yeah, Peter was a good friend of ours. I wrote that for Peter Shimke is a, a piano player who passed in 2020. Um, was a, a huge loss. He's a great, great jazz pianist. And uh, um, we lost him in 2020. And right away, I just said, well, because Peter and I, work in the studio a lot you really wanted to do some funk stuff together before we left and when i left to go do the wdr thing i think i was going for no i'm sorry it was something else i was doing um oh the mick fleetwood thing i was doing a mick fleetwood thing a tribute to peter green did you check that out that you might want to check that out scotty that's the thing that i was a musical director on too but yeah, yeah but i'm a big peter green fan though too. okay Go look at that up. Go look that up. That was a whole thing that we did. We did a movie and, and DVDs, and, and I got vinyl on it. I'll even send you one if you want. Wow. Um, anyways, when I was gone, Peter died during the time I was gone doing it. So I came back, and I was everybody was devastated, of course. So I wrote that song for Peter. Uh, one for Horace is for Horace Silver. Billy wrote that one. And uh, most of the other stuff we all just kind of made up in the studio. Well, Fred, we, Fred, Fred Lip, is that a... F oh, Fred Lip is just a blues song that we wrote for a friend of ours who, who passed away too, man. It's just like tributes to these guys, you know, guys that were not necessarily huge influences in our lives, but our friends, you know. You know, there are friends that, that we have to remember somehow, you know. And uh, uh, just, just uh, that's a cool tune, huh? <laughs> Fred Lip. And we do yeah. that. Yeah, you really got some great organ work on that one, especially. Thank you, brother. Um, but just, you know, there's so many highlights throughout because most of it is just really good, you know, um, funk-flavored jazz, you know, with right. prominent with prominent B3 and uh, and right. some sax and mixed in. Upright bass playing. Acoustic bass. All on yeah. drums, man. It's just it's such a cool, groovy, you know, and... And Jason just plays the heck out of the alto, man. I just, you know, he just sounds so great. Everybody really came to the party, so we'll, we'll do it again for sure. Yeah, you think in 2023 or is that something we can yeah. look forward to? Absolutely. Yep, we'll do it again. And, and I'll have Jakob put it out again, too, because he did a wonderful job. Wow, look forward to that for sure. Great. And uh, you mentioned about Paul putting a little guitar in there. Yeah, a little Benz, George Benson-ish uh, Absolutely. A couple spots, you know. That's his mentor. That's, I mean, that's Paul's favorite guy in the world, you know, of course. But Paul can do all sorts of different stuff. You know, you can sell like Prince, for God's sakes. You know, he's got all that real folk stuff down, too. But that this called for that kind of George Benson octave kind of stuff and blues. You know, it's just the blues, pretty much. You know, we love the blues. So, especially Blue Cadillac is real bluesy. As Paulie's too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. 
Yeah. That's the only vocal song on the record, which is a little way strange, but but it got played too. People love that one. So yeah, yeah, I could see like BB King, you know, jumping in on one like that. Yeah, right, right. Um, what would you say is like your you know signature playing style? You know, how would somebody maybe you know say, hey, I think that's Ricky P. That's got that touch. Um, you know what I think it would be the B three, uh, just enhancing the song with with things I call wheelie ops and wows, and uh, it's uh, it's just taste. You know, it's to taste. I, I I when I play the B three, I try to get I try to be as tasteful as possible. You know, it doesn't have to be super choppy. It doesn't have to be you know play fast playing and all sorts of stuff, but. It's either got to be super funky or super tasty, man. That's my that's my motto, and that's what I try to strive for. You know? I mean, that's my 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 goal on anybody's record who calls me to do it. And I did a lot of records back in the '90s for for all the smooth jazz guys because that was a big deal back then. Man. You know, for what from '93 on to you know to still up to these, these dates, I'm still doing record dates for these, these guys. You know, and writing songs for them. So. You know, because it's just some of that. Some of the stuff is, you know, some of the stuff is horrible, but some of it is really good too. I mean, <laughs> not the stuff that I did, but you know, you can you can you can hear some some things on certain stations, and you just go, "Wow, <laughs> you know, what, what was that?" But then there's other stuff that you go, "Wow, that was very cool." You know, there's such great musicians out there. It's you know, but anyways, that's that's kind of my my striver. So. What would you say for you is a key and, and for other, you know, aspiring keyboard players who might be listening or watching this, um, what's the key to being able to deliver what's called for regardless of genre? Listening. I think the key is listening to other people play, um, learning, turn your ears on, make sure you know what you're, what you're saying and listening to the players around you. And that is the biggest thing. I, I, can, I can't strive that enough. I can't state that enough. That's a, my thing uh, is a big deal is you make sure that you're playing together with the other cats and not stepping on one another. You know, that's my biggest fear of going into here and having to shut other people up. <laughs> Stop playing that right now. It's listening to other people and, and gelling with them. And that, that's the biggest thing I can say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I fear some of that is lost with it being such a production medium and people recording in isolation and not getting together on stage and really playing off each other so much. No doubt. No doubt. But there are, there are guys who feel that inside, even doing that and being separated can do that and, and come off like it's live. They really can. Cause I've done it. I've done it with some great musicians. So, I mean, they're some of the best in the world that get that, you know, but in, in, for upcoming people, upcoming kids that are playing music, you know, that is the key is to listening to what's going on around you, you know, and, and, and learning from it and, 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 and being tasteful with what you're doing. So that's, that's the bottom line, you know. Ricky, what would you say are one or two of the most unforgettable memories you've had from touring or being on the road or a particular show for whatever reason, good or bad? Well, the, the most recent one I can tell you about is doing the Peter Green thing. That was a big thing for me. I mean, that was a that was a genre of music that that was lost a little bit back in the day. Because if you if anybody knows Fleetwood Mac, 
That's where they came from. Fleetwood Mac was a blues band, and blues was the key. And Peter Green was a wonderful blues player and writer. And, uh, and he's revered by many of the top rock guitar players all over the world. And the, the tribute that we did do for me in my highlight, but besides the other one was, of course, playing with, with Sadao and put, being able to put those ba- that band together and having those great players that I played with for years. But this one is the most recent one. And it had so many different guitar players that I dealt with as far as putting the music together with Mick and, and, and doing this thing with them it was, a, it was a pure pleasure and a pure uh, labor of love. And, uh, and such great players, Pete Townsend, David Gilmore, uh, Kirk Hamlet, Hammett, uh, 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 you know, I mean, Johnny Lang, uh, uh, Rick Vito, uh, you know, I was I, so many people, man, you're just going to freak out, uh, you know, Billy Gibbons, you know, it's like, really? <laughs> All the people are playing on stage at one time, man. And I mean, it's, it's, it's very, uh, very cool, man. And uh, it was really fun to do. So that's, that's a big thing, but I got it. One other thing I have to tell you is playing with my family. And I think that's probably the biggest deal. And that's the most thrilling part of watching my family, what they do, and seeing them, the gift that they've got. You know, so. Did you get to go to Twins games whenever you wanted to? Uh, when my dad invited us, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, that would talk about cool stuff. That was. Uh, <coughs> And watching dad play the organ for the twins all the time. I mean, we were in the same booth as this guy by the name of Bob. Uh, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, he was the he announcer. He announced all the twins as they were going up to bat. And he was a big fan, twins, big twins fan. And all he did was cuss off mic, of course. <laughs> he would be so mad when they were doing But we were in the same booth with him. And uh, But going to games, we did all the time, man. We were very, very fortunate. How far was that when Harmon Killebrew was still around or after that? Or Harmon Killebrew, Brad Carew, Tony Oliva, Zoilo Versalis. Uh, uh, I mean, back in the 60s. I mean, it was all 60, 62 through 69. It was Denny McLean. Three, you know, when mom played for him, too. So Al Kaline. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah, of, no, that's the Tigers. No, that's the Tigers. That's the Tigers. Bob Allison. Absolutely, man. And you know, later, later, Kirby Puckett. Um, but, Jim Cott, yeah. holy buckets, man. That's all the baddest, all the greatest guys. I was even selling at 13 years old. I was selling pennants because we were in the pennant race. I'll never forget them losing. I was so sad. You know, it was one of those sad things, but I was waving the pennants and selling them. And they were losing so bad. And it was like I, I would sit down and just sulk. You know? <laughs> oh, it was fun, man. 13 years old. I'll never forget it. <laughs> when, um, when we lost Prince six years ago now. Yeah, um, wow. already six years. Man. I know it's incredible, right? Um, I feel like we we never did lose him because he's just with us no matter what. But um, exactly right. Um, were you as surprised as I was with the outpouring of, of love globally that showed up with, you know, lighting up buildings in purple and things like that? I mean, I mean, it was overwhelming, man. It was an overwhelming love experience, but, you know, I only wish he could have seen it, which he did, I'm sure, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 
you know what I have to tell you when when we found out that that was happening I gathered I actually gathered all the people that I knew that were playing with him at the time or that had played with him the Sonny Thompson so you know all the guys that were playing with him brought him to a bar so the, so they wouldn't get hounded by the press and we sat in a bar in a corner and ate and, and hugged and loved and did a whole thing the day he passed away and I'll never forget it just to get just to keep away from the paparazzi and of course it was overwhelming that it was it was such an outpouring of, of love and affection for the guy and uh, and it was, an, it was an incredible horrible incredible experience but i mean for kirk johnson to find him you know uh kj was devastated man you know and uh was his right hand guy man that was his best friend so that was a tough one that was a tough one to handle but yes i, I enjoyed watching that man it was it was due for him you know not that he passed but the outpouring love was due yeah it was. I, f- I felt a little bittersweet about it because um, I was kind of like, you know, where were some of these people the past 10 or 20 years when they were saying he's not exactly. done Purple Rain exactly. again? You know, exactly right, man. It's exactly right. where the hell were you five minutes ago? You know, yeah, yeah. You know, where were you 10, 20 years ago? You know, when this shit should have been happening. Yeah, well, he lost touch with all that, those, that kind of that scene, man. I think a lot has to do with when he was. You know, when he and Maite and, and they lost a kid, and, and that, that was discouraging for him, I think, in a way, that he had to, he had to reinvent himself. And when he came out with, you know, that that record, uh, um, uh, uh, that funky-ass record, what's it called, uh, Musicology, you know, that I think would give us a little bit of a resurgence for him and, uh, and, uh, and, and a new genre of stuff to, to, to history that was being made even though it wasn't as popular as it could have been, it could have been way more popular, I would say. Uh, but I don't think he cared. I think he just was enjoying life at that time, man. You know, I really do. And he was able to express himself so well in that genre of music, you know, that that was his deal, man. So, and he made it right. <laughs> no doubt about it. When, when was the last time that you saw him? The night before he passed away. Really? I, Yep. He, we went to see, we went to the Dakota club in downtown Minneapolis to see, I can't remember the name of the singer. Great. Kind of a, a jazzier R and B soulful, uh, black woman and, and just killing that. And it was wonderful. And I, I saw his head walk in and go up to his perch and I kind of caught his eye and he gave me a little heads up and he went up to his perch up on the second floor. And that was the last time I saw him the next morning, I got the call. I mean, he was there the night before. He was, looked fine. He had big fro and you know the glasses. And, you know, and I mean, I hadn't seen him in years, you know. But he saw us, and gave us a little nod. So that was about it. And so it was like, Ugh! you know, when we found that out, it was pretty sick, man. It made everybody pretty sick, you know, to hear that. But then yeah. just weeks before that, he was dead. You know, they 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 couldn't. They were trying to revive him, you know, in the in the plane, and then. Like Chicago ride or whatever he was doing that land the plane somewhere. So I had what? no idea what was going on. I knew he was I knew he was in pain, but yeah. Why did you stop collaborating with him? We just lost touch, man. After the Paisley Park thing, I think was getting a little tired for him. He, he you know, he he was saying people were stealing from him, he thought, and uh, I'm sure somebody was, but 
you know, he'd been the only people that were allowed into Paisley Park were Tom Tucker and I at the back then in the beginning of he was paranoid. And this was when Maite was pregnant before he found out that the child, he was going to lose that child and whatever, you know, after he lost him. I think that was a kind of a thing like I told you before that just kind of shut him off for a minute. And he, nobody was allowed and everything stopped. Everything stopped for a while. Then. I mean, it was, uh, he lost touch with everybody at that point, except for a few key pe people, you know, in his life that were still keeping him together as far as what was going on. But I'm sure it was devastating to him and all that. You know. But that's when we lost touch, was, you know, back in 96, 7, something like that. But you know, we always, you know, we never kept in touch that much. You know, we never really talked to each other, but still, I, I know there was mutual respect for each other. So, and I'm sorry to say we didn't, we didn't work together anymore, but he sure had great musicians in his band. <laughs> he found all those great cats, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good Ricky, before I let you go, I'd like to ask guests um, to pick five Desert Island albums. So, you know, if you could only have five records for the rest of time and none that you're on. You know, what are the most important five records that you would need to still be able to hear? Oh, boy. Uh, Tarkus by Rosalinka Palmer. Thrust by Herbie Hancock. Feel by George Duke. Uh, uh, James Brown. And by a guy, whatever James Brown, I can't think of the name of a record of his, but... Uh, Bill Evans and uh, Tony Bennett duet record. That's fine. Yeah, you got the fusion. I'll keep me going for a while. You got the traditional <laughs> jazz. You got the fusion. You, you got the, I'd have, the fun fruits. I'd have to sit and learn it all, man. <laughs> I better have a keyboard there to learn it all. Yeah. You still fool around with the Moog at all? Absolutely, all the time. You know, now we have we have stuff in the box, which is a little easier, but I still have my mini mode sitting right. I've got it racked up inside the rack in my studio, and I absolutely still use it. There's nothing like it, man. Nothing like it. Was there anybody that you ever encountered uh, that you were kind of starstruck about? George Benson, probably. I think Benson was... Uh, just because of what he's done and, uh, and how I've tried to emulate him singing and, and you know, do, and just knowing that he's probably the best guitar player I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and I don't even play guitar, <laughs> but he worked with all the greatest organ players, you know, and uh, that's another one. I, I guess I would, I, <laughs> can I get six records? Joey sure. D from Mexico, please. We'll call it, we'll call it an alternate for the okay. six. <laughs> Thank you. Well, he's another one of the guys, and you know all that, all those. I, I mean, there's so many records that I grew up listening to. I, I would love to have them all, but those were the most influential and 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 the most dear in my heart. So, you know, because it, it, it went from being a child up until now. You know, sure. So. It's so great too that George is still out there doing it. You know, well, it certainly sounds great too, man. He really does. So, pleasure, yeah. Scott. Likewise, on behalf of the viewers and listeners, thank you for all the beautiful music you've given us through the years. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it so much. And anytime you want to talk, I'm there. So let's do it again. All right. Thanks, Ricky. 
All right, Scotty, take care of yourself. You too, man. All right, man. Thanks. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibrating on to the rhythm of the one.